Good morning. I wish everybody felt um, and maybe spoke the reality of your feelings um, when you see people here. It is a great thing to see our visitors here. There's several of you who've come and you've graced our presence and because you're here we are blessed by it and so thank you for coming our way. For whatever reason brought you here, we're grateful. And members too, those of you uh, have come and I, I, it's Sunday morning and things are going on and the holiday is almost upon us and you're here. I come in and I, uh, after seeing Bill Barry eating lunch with him on Thursday, he says, I'm not going to be there Sunday morning, I'll only be there Sunday night. But I come in and there he is and that's an unexpected surprise for me because of what he told me and I can't tell you what a blessing that is. And I come in and I see uh, some of our college students over here. Uh, Maria uh, Blankenship from Kennett, and none of the other Kennett people are here and uh, able to be here today, but she is, and that just, that just did something for me. And I look over there and see Elias over there. I, I, could you hold him up real quick, kind of like Simba, real quick? Uh, uh, he's got a bow tie on. You all see the bow tie? I, that is, I just looked over there and saw, I have to wear one, and he's wearing one with me. He's identifying with me. Uh, somebody call that 800 number. That's child abuse. Anyway, but he's over there crying. I said, well, I can tell you what the problem is. Take that bow tie off. He'll be fine. Uh, but uh, it's beautiful to see that, and I'm grateful for your presence. Every one of you, uh, it, it does something for every one of us, and we often don't say it, and we should. Uh, it's good to see you. It's great to be here. Michael uh, was involved in a car accident the other day uh, up here by the, close to Wendy's up there, and I think he's really, really sore. He looked terrible last time I saw him. Not physically he's fine, but he's just really sore. But he's going to a funeral memorial today for Brian Starin. Some of you may remember him. Those of you who were at the Valentine's Day magic show a couple years ago, he was the one performing. And then he came back for our college day thing and did a tremendous job. And we lost him too soon. And his memorial is today. And I'm just mindful of him, mindful of, our, uh, of his family, mindful also of uh, uh, the young people going to camp. There's going to be a bunch of people uh, flooding in Bowdoin. The population is going to double, and, and, uh, and it's, they're all going to be out there, and it's going to be a great time. They're all under the direction of Michael Deese, so they need our prayers big time. However, we have the luxury of knowing Charlotte is there picking up the pieces. So anyway, so they're going to be there, and uh, I just want us to pray for that effort and pray for what's going on here. Let's pray together. Father, we are mindful that when we come before you, we're entering your presence. The privilege of being in the presence of the Almighty is something that we can become too familiar with. And familiarity can breed contempt. And so we try to keep our minds conscious of and, and fully aware of the gravity of what's going on here. And we're also mindful that we can come before you and bring before you great thoughts on our hearts and, and ask you to be present in a particular way with things that are going on. And we're mindful that many of our young people and many adults who are, who are functioning as teachers in different um, capacities at camp are going away to, this week to, to draw close, to be away from things that are familiar so that they can have an experience with you. And I pray, Father, you show up. I, I pray you show up mightily and that you, you make your presence known so that they are changed in some way. I pray that you watch over them and keep them safe. I pray that you watch over them and, and help them to grow together toward one another, but also toward you. 
for every word of instruction given them, we pray that it's powerfully received. And for everything that happens, whether planned or whether not planned, that it produces a great result in the lives of those young people. Father, we're mindful of the Starin family as they go through a tremendous sense of loss, a very unexpected death. And I pray, Father, that you watch over the church of which they were a part and the church at large that has very been, been very much touched by this loss. Be with Michael, help him to recover well and be able to be present. Be with Charlotte as she guides as well. And, and Father, we just pray that this week is a, a powerful time for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I want to give you a definition and see if you agree with it. All anger is unmet expectations. All anger results from unmet expectations. Now, I, I can imagine some objections, and maybe that doesn't cover all anger, but I think it covers most of them. There, there is something you're assuming will happen here. It doesn't. It happens different than what you expect, and it creates anger. This might, be, this might be between you and a driver on the highway. You're driving along, and you expect people to be civil and use common sense, and some drivers don't. Common sense is not that common. And so as you're driving along, they do something you don't expect, and it makes you angry. Or, or maybe you're a wife married to a man that you expect he would remember the most important day of his life, the, the greatest day of his life forever, that the anniversary when it comes up he will remember and he doesn't. You expect him to because it is the greatest day of his life. But he doesn't and it makes you angry. Or maybe you have kids that are supposed to behave this way at church, and for a time they don't. And what do you do? The evil eye and chunk things at them or flip them in the back of the head or whatever, and you get their attention. You it makes you angry. Or maybe it's you. Maybe something you do. You expect more of yourself. You expect you, yourself to perform better in that basketball game or that football game. And you make an error and you're down on yourself for so long. Or, or maybe it's behavior that you should be better than that and you should behave better than that. You should respond better than that. And you don't and it makes you angry at yourself. Now the thing about this is, if you really don't care about the person, even though they don't meet your expectations, you may not get angry it's a function of your love for people sometimes to be angry. If you act indifferent when your spouse steps out on you, something is wrong. You should be angry. And we should look at each other. These are times to decide. When you get angry, when anger flares up, it should be a time. What was I expecting? What was I wanting? You see, the anger in marriage, for instance, oftentimes is a good time to say, what was it about that happened right there? that didn't meet his or her expectations. And do I care about that? Is it that big a deal? But I want to go bigger than that. I want us to look at a, sto a couple of stories from the life of Jesus today and realize Jesus got angry too. And if he got angry because there was an expectation he had for his people that wasn't met, I want to know. 
As Christians, we want to please our Savior. We want to please God. And so if there are certain areas of our life where he has expectations, we want to we honor him in those. This story doesn't mention the word anger at all. Neither one of them do. The word anger doesn't appear. But I have a hunch, right? I mean, when you go through this place, and it's, a, it's kind of the courtyard of the temple, and there's all these people setting up money uh, tables to sell pigeons and to sell animals that are going to be bought to make sacrifices shortly. When Jesus walks through there and he gets mad enough to turn over those tables and to, to throw those pigeons out and throw those people out, I have a feeling he's angry. Can, we assume, can, can I just assume we're on the same page here? He's not singing kumbaya while he's doing this with a great smile on his face saying, I'm just delighting and just disrupting your life for a while. He's angry. And then he leaves from there and he goes out. He's hungry the next morning. And he looks at this fig tree. It's got these beautiful leaves. It advertises that it is alive. And he comes up to it and there's no figs on it. So he curses the fig tree. What I mean by curse is he says, May no one ever eat any fruit from you again, and then it withers and dies. I think Jesus is a little angry. Can we agree to that? I mean, the word's not there, but he's not, it's not a term of endearment. This is a curse on this tree. Why is Jesus angry? If we really think that anger is unmet expectation, the question is, what was Jesus expecting to see in these two settings that he didn't see that made him so angry he had to respond this way? Now, uh, keep in mind, anger is not sin. I don't mean to suggest that for anybody because we are told in Ephesians, be angry. He wants you to be angry. There are some things, church, that should make you angry. If if there are certain things that happen in life and you're not angry, something is wrong because there are expectations we should have. But he says, be angry, but don't sin. So Jesus, whatever he did here, it wasn't a sinful thing. It was a function of his anger that he handled it properly, and that's what we should do too. Find a constructive thing to do with your anger. But what is it that he saw? So he walks into the temple, and he sees something he does not expect. And he doesn't see something he does expect, and it makes him angry. And as he leaves, as he leaves, as he provides interpretation while turning over these tables, throwing the money around and letting these pigeons loose or whatever, as he's doing all that, he says something. Dialogue is really important. So he says to them, my house should become a house, should be a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting Isaiah, this, this passage from Isaiah 56. And he's talking about foreigners. The day is coming when foreigners from all around, Gentiles, people who are not believers, come to Jerusalem to find out about God. Foreigners will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples. What I expect is the temple was built to be, provide communion between human beings and God. That's what the temple's function is for. I come to the temple to meet with God. I come to the temple which will be the means by which God will draw all nations to himself. But that's not what he finds when he gets there. He finds a whole lot going on besides that. And in fact, he finds things that shouldn't be taking place. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon had built the temple and he dedicates it, 
he has this amazingly long prayer we're not going to read, but he's talking about what this, this house is supposed to be. And he says, God, this is a place for people to come and pray to you. Prayer is like a shorthand for your entire walk with God. So he says, here's what's going to happen. God, when, when your people are in the midst of famine and they can't figure out what's going on, when they come to your house and they pray to you, we expect you to answer. When we go out and fight our enemies and we get defeated and we can't understand what happened, we come into your temple and we pray to you, we expect you to respond. When foreigners find out about God and they learn about God and they're amazed and they come to the temple and they pray, give them what they ask for. This is Solomon saying this is a house where anybody can access God. But when he comes, Jesus comes to the temple this last week of his life. When he walks in, he sees a five-acre flea market. It's interesting that Sundays are the busiest days for flea markets. Isn't that weird? He comes into the temple expecting to find people drawing close to God in this place, and all he finds is a petting zoo. He finds a place where they're bartering, where they're bargaining, where they're charging too much, and they're selling animals, and you have the smell of animals, and the, and the sounds of animals, and the chaos of all that stuff. Where's anybody praying? Where's anybody accessing God? Where's anybody able to draw near to God? Because we've turned it into this business. When the first thing you see when you come into the sanctuary is a soda machine, and a coffee machine, and a cafe... Jesus is like, what happened here? What we designed this for was to be a place where people can draw near to God and everything else is happening. And not this. I want you to see this temple drawing. This kind of gives you an idea of what the temple grounds look like. What you have is, you get closer and closer. God's in the middle. We can call it God's in the middle. The most holy place. You may remember what's in the most holy place. Come on, y'all. The Ark of the Covenant, right, is where it's supposed to be. This is where God and the mercy seat is. This is where God most directly is. And there's one person who can go into that particular spot one time a year, the high priest. And that's all. That's kind of God's place, right? Nobody goes there except the high priest once a year. Just outside of that is a place where priests can get a little closer. They can't go there, but they can get, they can get pretty close. Outside of that is where Jewish men can meet. They can meet with God and they can draw close. Get a little close, not close, but they, not, not, uh, but, and then outside of that, Jewish women. But the big overarching courtyard right there, that's for Gentiles. That's people from anywhere in the world. They don't have to be Jewish at all. They can just, they can come close. They can't get real, real close, but they can come learn about God. They can get close enough. But guess what they decided? Oh, it doesn't matter if Jews, let's turn this into the big flea market, the petting zoo. Let's turn this into this business transaction place. It doesn't matter whether Gentiles can find God or not. We're his chosen people, and we're not really interested in them or not. We're just interested in us, so it doesn't matter anyway. And they made it impossible for people to find God. Now you're going to say, okay, all that's interesting. What's that got to do with me? Well, what's the temple today? The temple is a couple of places. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says the temple is us as an assembly. As us as a local group of people, as we meet here, we, we are the church, the assembled church here right now. Now what are the implications for this? 
Listen, I appreciate, we, we should do all these things. And I don't want anybody misunderstanding what I'm saying. We should do canoe trips. We should do marriage seminars. But what must never take the number one spot for the assembled people of God is being a place where people can find and access and learn about God. That has to be number one. And anything that gets in the way of that must be driven out. And we must keep that number one. Don't ever let anything else, because if that happens, we become a social club. We compete with Lions Club. Let's be careful with this. I used to apply this this way. If you're selling candy for Cub Scouts, don't come to church with it. You know, because, you know, your money changes. Am I here to buy? I, and I'm not, I don't apply it that way anymore. But I, I think a lot of times we do a lot of things extra, and sometimes the extra becomes the ultimate. And somewhere down the line comes the rest of it. And the number one thing this church exists for is to be a place where people can learn about and access God. That's number one. Now then, you go to the individual believer because you also house God. That's also 1 Corinthians. Three chapters later, chapter 6, when Paul says, you as the body are the temple of God. So you become a place. When you have decided that I'm no longer going to call the shots of my life, I'm going to name Jesus Lord. And I'm going to repent of my sin. And I'm going to accept his great offer of saving me. I'm going to be immersed in the waters of baptism. I'm going to rise to walk a new life. New ownership, right? You have a, you have a master change. No longer are you calling the shots. God is. God takes up residence. A lot of people debate this, but there is no debate. God takes up residence in your life. What does he expect when he moves in? He expects your body to be a place where he communes with you. You spend time with him. You keep contact with him. You let him be Lord of all of your life. Not just Sunday morning where you'll be assembled on Sunday morning. But he, he takes up residence and he calls the shots to all your life. Not just your politics. Not just making sure you're not homosexual or transgender and not uh, for abortion. But all of it. The greed in your heart. No, that's got to go. The envy, the lust, the anger, the being rude to people. Gotta go. God lives here. God lives here and takes control of this. He calls the shots. That's what he's expecting. And guess what happens when you invite God into your life and you get busy with all this other stuff and you never commune with God yourself. You don't draw close to him. You don't spend any time with him. He can't meet with you because you're too busy with other things. Guess what? You've done the same thing the Jews have done with the temple here. You've basically driven God out. And we have to be dogged about this. We have to be very watchful about this. When things come into our lives that move God's presence in our lives to the side and we remove him, we put him in a storage room, we, we give him this room, but we keep the rest of the house to ourselves. Well, this is what we've got to do. We've got to be like Jesus and drive the money changers out of our lives. We've got to drive that stuff that takes place of God, takes precedence over God, and things, anything, any of it, any of it even good in itself that gets in the way of being a place where God communes with you has to be driven out. You have got to be as serious about this as Jesus is about this temple. Because, guys, it's a, it's a constant watchfulness. There'll be times where you draw close to God and you think, I've got this figured out, and then you'll get out of balance again. 
And you've got to go in there and clean it out because either you drive God out or you let God drive other things out. You've got to do one of the... You have got to choose. When you're a temple, God expects, Jesus is expecting you to let him reorder your life, every bit of it. And if something gets in the way, church, we've got to be willing to pick up a whip and turn over tables and drive people out of our lives to make sure God lives here. That's not the only concern he has because he adds this verse to this verse from Isaiah, another verse from Jeremiah chapter 7. He puts two verses together, and when Jesus puts two verses together, he does it on purpose. It's not because he couldn't remember where one ended and the other began. Jesus knows what he's doing. He says, first of all, the temple is not fulfilling the role God designed it for. And second of all, the way that you guys are using it was never in God's mind. In Jeremiah chapter 7, here's what Jeremiah says. You guys love being God's people. You just don't want to be godly. You love the identity of your new uh, relationship. You, you are God's people, but you don't want to have to change any behavior as a result of it. So these people would live any way they wanted to on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then on Saturday they came to the temple and they did their prayers and that somehow sanctified their entire life. I can do whatever I want outside the confines of this building. As long as I come into this temple to do some worship, it totally endorses all my life. And so they were living anyone they wanted to outside, making sure they come inside once a week, and their lives were fine with God. But can I tell you the purpose of the temple, and the reason I like the New Testament image of the temple better, because the temple was in one spot in the Old Testament. Here it is, and you can either go there and be there, and you can leave the temple. But when God takes up residence in your body, you can never leave him. You can never go somewhere. I don't want to be in the temple right now. I want to do my own thing. So walk over. No. Wherever you go, the temple goes with you. God's presence resides with you. This is why it's so important to understand the indwelling. It doesn't matter where you go. You take God with you. And there's some places God simply should not be. He should because you are his house. There's certain places you can't go. And there's certain things you can't do because it's not worthy of the one who lives there. It's not worthy of the one who lives there. The temple was meant to be a place where you drew near to God, but also when you left, that nearness stayed with you. There's as much about God's concern for your life. There's more his concern for your life, what happens outside this building than what's inside. He goes on to curse that fig tree. He walks out and just says to that thing, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. It just seems harsh, doesn't it? How can a tree be responsible? This is all symbolism. He puts this all together. There's a reason. When a thing has leaves and it's growing, it's supposed to be producing, and you go up to it and it's not, it's time to go. Jesus said this over and over again. What should happen to the salt that loses its savor? What happens to the salt that loses its saltiness? Tossed out and trodden under the foot of men. What happens to the tree that does not produce fruit? You, you pull it up. What happens... Over and over again in the New Testament, what happens to the one who's given one talent but doesn't use it and he goes and buries it? It's taken away from him. Jesus combines the temple with the fig tree for a reason. I'm not cleaning the temple. I am replacing it. Temple's gone. 
temple as building is gone. I'm not going to clean it out because it's unclean, but it's not functioning for what it's for. I'm going to replace it. I'm going to be the replacement. And he goes on the end of that week to offer the sacrifice where he becomes the temple of God. And then everyone who's in Christ also becomes part of the temple. And therefore, the temple has been replaced by us. But here's the warning. When God comes into your life and offers you this gracious offer of Him living in your life and saving you and cleansing you and and, and making you right with Him, when He offers you this, He also says, and so I want to use you to be the place where I come down into earth and I commune with men and people can see that communion between me and you and it draws the world to me. Do you know why He comes into your life? So He can use you. That sounds awful, but it's also the most honorable thing in our lives. We have a God who didn't just save us, he saves us to use us. He wants to use us to reach the world by letting us be the place where he comes down and he shows himself to the world through our lives. So the warning is pretty important. Be holy. Draw close to God and get closer to him, honoring him in your life. And then from the fig tree, Don't just look faithful, but be faithful and draw the world. The world is hungry and needs to learn about God, and they need to be able to come to us as the tree and find the reality. This morning, I want to remind you, Jesus does love us. He delights in saving us, but he has expectations. He has a plan, an idea, and his expectation is he comes to his people and he expects us to let him in his li- our lives, transform our lives, and reach the world through us. And when he can't expect, when that expectation's not met, there's some anger. Not the irrational, emotional anger of us, but the disappointment of knowing this was my design and this was the agreement and you're not honoring it. Let us be a people that takes our great delight and honor in knowing this, that God lives in us and God is using us to demonstrate to the world his nature and draw the world to him. This is the greatest privilege of any human being to know that God is living in them and using them to reach the world. But it's something that we've got to do intentionally and by design. This morning, if you've never chosen to let God save you and become a tool he uses to reach the world, I can't think of a more honorable thing to do with your life than that. And this morning you have an opportunity to do that. Maybe you've done that, though, and for whatever reason, you've kind of driven God out of your life. You haven't made space to commune with him. You haven't made a way for him to use you to reach the world. That needs to be corrected. And this morning, maybe you've driven him out before. It's time to invite him back. There's no rebaptism necessary. All it means is inviting him back and giving him the room. And this morning, you have that opportunity too. Whatever response you need to make, now's the time to make it as we stand and sing to encourage you.